Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to episode 638 with my guest, Dr. Scott Lyons. Uh, This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the stuff pinballing around inside our skulls from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. Uh, So take everything I say, uh, not with a grain of salt, but uh, a shaker, (laughs) a shaker of salt and say hi to Jimmy Buffett, (laughs) you fucking ridiculous old man with your 70s reference. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. Uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Dash. Um, she About her depression, she writes, Every minute off the couch feels like mile 20 of a marathon I neither signed up for nor trained to run. About her anxiety, My brain is a lit match, my body is a crumpled pile of gas-soaked rags, and my consciousness is is trapped, waiting for it all to go up in flames. Snapshot from her life, recovering from a rough bout of COVID and realizing upon waking the significant reduction in symptoms from the day before. Oh, I mused, I feel like myself again. Then instantly came a sense of panicked doom. Shit, I feel like myself again. Thank you for those. So good, so relatable. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by uh, Julia. And she asks, uh, my husband shares a birthday with our nephew who sadly died as an infant. My family has started sort of a memorial tradition of visiting the nephew's grave on his birthday. To the point, I think they forget it's my husband's birthday, too. I want to celebrate my husband, who is a wonderful person and would never dream of trying to make the day about himself. When my brother and sister-in-law are still grieving, even several years after the nephew's death, do I say something? I don't think so. I don't. I think maybe you just try to make it special uh, with your with your husband. Maybe give it a couple more years. I I don't know, man. That is a really tough one. Um, but I think the fact that you are identifying what you're feeling, um, and you're letting your husband know that he's not invisible is important, but I think um, 
it, you're, you know, your, your, your brother and your sister-in-law, I can't imagine what they're going through. And, uh, it's certainly, it's a delicate situation. So what I'm saying is a conga line over the nephew's grave. This is from the voice in your head survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself girl who, who thinks she is deep, (laughs) but is really just depressed. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I often tell myself that I am not enough or doing enough. When I was younger, I thought that I wouldn't be so sad as an adult. I thought I would get my shit together and learn how to truly live. But now, at age 26, I wonder if being an adult is just learning how to pick myself up off the floor. Sometimes I'm only down for a couple of hours. Sometimes it's years. The cold tile beneath me begins to feel more like home than my own body. Today, I'm grateful that I was able to scrape my deleted human shell up off the floor. I took a shower and I am alive. I think that actually is enough. Thank you for that. That uh, I think a lot of us really relate to that. There's some days when even showering feels like, oh, why? Why? I get it. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, and this is filled out by, um, is this a woman, man? Uh, a woman who calls herself a ground to stand on in a groundless existence. Uh, how would you like people to think of you? Either as a shining light or <laughs> of perfection or not at all. I like it. I like the either or. That's just some good black and white work right there. How does it feel writing that? Silly, because I know that's not how living as a person works. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? To get to know my grandmother, who died when I was seven, I have just vague memories of her and only found out when I was older from my mom what a remarkable and complicated life she had. I feel like it's an important piece to understanding my mom that she doesn't share much about. Uh, share as many of these as you feel like. I'm supposed to feel blank about blank, but I don't. Think of this as a sad mad lib. Uh, I'm supposed to feel happy slash excited or even just content with my life, but I don't feel like I'm, but I don't. I feel like I'm behind the wheel of a stolen car that I don't know how to drive. I would like an, an instruction manual ASAP. I'm supposed to feel like I'm having the time of my life in college, but I don't. I feel isolated and sad and like I am wasting, quote, the best years of my life, unquote. I think a lot of people in college feel that way. Also, a lot of times mental illness uh, will present itself in those years of people's lives. Um, you, You are so not alone in that, and I know that probably doesn't make you feel necessarily any better but um anyway continuing i'm supposed to feel capable of quitting weed but i don't every time it lasts a couple of days and then i get that itchy boredom of needing to do something but not wanting to do anything i've tried meditating but honestly even when it works that makes me feel like even more of a boring uh 
not-partier whose most significant memories of this time are getting stoned to go to sleep at 9 p.m. because I just can't stand to be awake anymore. I looked forward to college. I looked forward to college for so long, and I should have known it was the whole around the corner things will be better logic that never works anyways. My suggestion is to try going off the weed for a while so you can gauge where your real depression is at. And maybe it'll lift after time off weed. Maybe it'll, I don't know, it'll get worse, but maybe see a psychiatrist and, and throw that in there. Because one of the things that's so difficult, if we're dealing with clinical depression or anxiety or something like that, self-medicating uh, just complicates the process. Uh, it makes it harder, you know, if if medication is something that, that, that we're going to need. It just makes things a lot, lot fuzzier. Um, and I think self-medicating is a way of avoiding the things that maybe we at least temporarily or long-term need to look at patterns in ourselves, our ways of thinking, identifying what we're feeling rather than numbing it so that we can go, okay, what's a better tool to deal with this feeling that I'm not enough or I don't have enough? How does it make you feel writing your real feelings out? Kind of the same. It was nice to get it out, but I know even when this passes and I forget about it for a bit, I will feel these things again. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? No, of course, even my problems aren't unique or special. Um, and then LMFAO. Uh, would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Not really. I think everyone's a little fucked up, but that doesn't make me feel better. I want answers. Why hasn't anyone figured it out yet? Man, that is the, the million-dollar question. Uh, This is from the love survey filled out by Far From Content, and they write, I love it when I walk my dog in the early evening. The weather is cool, the streets are quiet, and the sun is starting to set. My heart feels full when I see my dog's tail wag, and I know he's enjoying it as much as I am. Most of all, I feel free of any real-world stress and can just be in the moment. Those are so nice. I always dread taking Gracie for a walk. I don't know why, because every time I get out there, I'm like, the sun feels so good on my face. She's so happy. It's amazing how much our brains just lie to us. Is it our, is our brain trying to protect us? Is it just caught in some mode that got wired in there? Is it purely genetic? Is it environmental? I don't know, but when I get this, I'm supposed to get this answer by four o'clock, so when it comes in, I'll, uh, I'll share it with you guys. Uh, this episode is brought to you guys by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Getting to know what is going on inside us, for me, is a lifelong process. I don't think it's ever truly over. You know, I heard an interview with uh, Norman Lear, the guy that has created tons of great television, and he... I think it was 99, something like that, somewhere in his mid to late 90s. And he's, he's still in therapy. And he said, I still learn things about myself every time. And I kind of feel the same way. It's like a tune-up for my brain. 
so if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love my therapist, Heidi. She's gentle and wise, and she, she helps guide me and just bring things to my attention. Uh, BetterHelp is entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And then finally... This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Blueberry, and about her depression, uh, she writes, there is nothing quite as heavy as the feeling of emptiness. That is so deep. That is so deep and so true. T-shirt. Make that a T-shirt about her ADD just stuck anorexia, the one thing that makes me feel powerful is the same thing that makes me feel powerless. About her OCD, despite being an atheist, it is my religion every obsessive thought feels like a prayer. Uh, About her codependency, being around you makes me feel like I'm hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and pleasing you is the only way to pay it off. Oh my God, these are so good. Uh, about living with an abuser, a covertly incestuous, incestuous addict mother. I will only ever be your daughter. I am nothing besides an extension of you. And then a snapshot of her life. Trying to kill myself at 13. Sitting in the emergency room triage with a stomach full of pills coming in and out. Looking across the room at my mother, who says, between sucking her teeth, you're going to fucking school tomorrow. My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> 
the greatest source of our suffering. Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions. It is very hard to heal in dark isolation. I developed compassion. It is in connection and community where that happens. The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm going to have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this. <laughs> I'm here with uh, Dr. Scott Lyons. Um, and you, we're going to talk about such an important topic. Well, wouldn't it be weird if I introduce this? We're going to talk about a topic that is really marginal and uh, not even really worth discussing. <laughs> uh, you got a book called Addicted to Drama. And when your PR person pitched you, I was like, yes, that is such a great topic coupled with the fact that uh, – you, know, you have a PhD and you talk about trauma trapped in the body and you've got a quote from uh, your book, a blurb uh, getting praise from Peter Levine. I mean, shit. <laughs> that's that's some good stuff. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's a beautiful intro. Well, we're done. So it's, it's all downhill from here. Oh, shit. Thank you for coming by. And you did a shitty job of parking. Uh. Scott Scott pulled into the driveway. I share a driveway with my neighbors. And Scott, the only way you could have parked worse is if you'd done diagonal. I think it was a diagonal. It was pretty close. <laughs> it was pretty close. I told you, yes. I've never yes. driven before. This yes. is my first time. Yeah. And I think you should have more empathy. <laughs> Uh, Scott is visiting from Miami, where uh, where he's based. Let's let's dive into uh, drama and people that are addicted to it. Where where's a good place to begin? Well, we could start with what does it look like? What is it? Where does it come from? And let's, and, and let's if it's possible, talk about personal drama you have experienced, either watching from the outside yeah. um, or being in the middle of. Growing up as a teenager, yeah. etc., the formative yeah. years. I mean, I can speak about it from the inside because I have lived a life of an addiction to drama, um, and I have lived the life as a therapist of of working with other people um, who are addicted to drama. And I've also lived the life of a child growing up in a household of chaos and crisis. Is there a therapist out there that didn't grow up in some kind of uh, a void? Of a healthy need? None that I've met, but I'd, I'd be curious if yeah. there is one out there and how good they are. <laughs> what, what was the the void um, or the overabundance that kind of you know, led to the physician heal thyself? Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I, I mean, I was an artist, too, before I was a, a therapist. And what kind of art did you do? I did dance. I did opera. I did acting. And Good directing. Lord. Yeah. Yeah, you have a, a, a dancer's uh, physique. He's, he's very square-shouldered and narrow hips and very fit and fuck off. Yeah, and I can kick my leg up to my forehead. Can you still? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I can, actually. And um, one time I knocked myself out. No. <laughs> yes. 100% right before his shows. Over warmed up, and uh, I bought my hit my forehead and knocked myself down and unconscious for a minute. Yeah, <laughs> and that is how I became a therapist. That was that was the turning point to which I said, I think I need a new career. <laughs> what did uh, lead you to transition out of that? Obviously, dancing you can't do forever. Yeah, um, was it was that? Uh, it, it was actually a, it was. 
it was the seedling of this book that actually um, was the turning point for me. Had, uh, and had you studied uh, psychology? Psychology? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh okay. So I, you were still dancing? Had you gotten your PhD when you were still dancing? No, I did my PhD starting uh, at twenty eight. Okay. And um, I, but I had already gone to other grad schools, uh, studied dance movement therapy, uh, neurodevelopmental therapy. Other, I was always in school. I loved school, and would you would you major in college dance uh, undergrad? I majored yeah. in theater and directing. Yeah, and then uh, I did a grad program in dance, and then a bunch of other grad programs and gotcha. all sorts of fun, interesting therapeutics. So yeah. And I, it was a, it was you know in my late twenties where I was still directing, um, and for a very big rock band which I cannot name because no? I signed an NDA. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and um, yeah, I I actually didn't know who they were, and when I told my parents, they dropped to their knees. They're like, "How do you not know who they are?" And I, I just never really listened to music, right? Which is ironic because for I, a dance, I know yeah. I, I had a lot of auditory processing issues as a kid, a lot of learning disabilities, and so music was always overstimulating to me. Gotcha. And um, anyway, so I, I was in the midst of that production, and my whole life kind of fell apart. I my relationship fell apart. Um, my I was in grad school at the time as well, and I just I was. Uh, I reached a, a point that I had never reached a point before of overwhelm. And I had thrived in chaos. I loved stress. It's it's a thing that was my energy pack. So was this objectively chaotic or was it in your brain chaotic or both? I mean, my mom would tell you I've never been able to clean my room or my desk. Like sh- I I organized in chaos. Like when What does when, that mean? Like if someone if my mom ever came in and she was to organize my desk, I would find that disorganizing. I got you. Because there was, a, there was a way in which my chaos and, you know, exhibited and, like, things everywhere, post-it notes everywhere, was the way I organized. Gotcha. Chaos was my organizing principle. <laughs> and um, it got to a point where even at, you know, what I thrived on was too much. It was like the like the glass was full and somebody had left the hose on in the water in the glass and I collapsed. Like like uh, give me some specific yeah. examples if you're if you're comfortable yeah, yeah. sharing. I don't wanna pry too deeply, but when you talk about too much. Yeah, I, I was starting to get a lot of physical health. I was starting to get TIAs, uh I was migraines. Um, What's a TIA? Transitional attack. It's a small stroke kind oh, okay. of Okay. That's the best way to kind of describe it. Okay. And, uh, is it, when was that from stress? Yeah, it can be. Okay. Yeah. yeah genetics and stress. And Kicking yourself in the head. A couple of <laughs> kicking myself yes. in the head. Yeah. It was that deep concussion I gave myself from, uh, being so fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Another fabulous related injury. <laughs> <laughs> it was the dramatic flare of my leg oh, that did course. it. Of course. And, um, you know, it kicked me into a conscious life. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just use that pun till it's. <laughs> Overused. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, like I, I had collapsed, severely collapsed. And I noticed that the things that felt reviving to me was like calling my ex who it was a really toxic relationship. 
And I would suddenly feel more like uh, my senses were more attuned. I could see better. I felt like I could get myself out of bed. I didn't have that sense of depression. I'd get into a fight with my parents. I'd watch a totally violent action movie, and all of a sudden I'd feel like revived. And it was it was a sense of revived to an old self that thrived mm-hmm. on chaos. Yeah, the old cattle prod that you're used to. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, you know, at a certain point I was like, I don't think this is how most people live. Like, right. ease was making me worse, and drama was making me better. And there's something that was like, oh gosh, this is this is a skew. Like something is not right, right. here. And um, you know, I, I dived deeper into meditation practice. I dived deeper into contemplation, and I started to realize my own propensity to rev myself up or to find the conditions or create them to which I could be riled up. Going out for drinks with a friend that loves to gossip or who had an on again, off again. I mean, toxic ex. Toxic ex. And and I'm sure... Gossipy parents. I was was just going to say, I'm sure some relatives that... uh, Yeah, or just hanging out with my relatives who are... Love the drama. Love the drama. And people can't see it. No, you can't see it from the inside because literally your senses, your sense organs, so how you see, how you smell, how you taste, how you sense time, Mm -hmm. how you hear, all changes after trauma. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the world of those who are addicted to drama from the inside are justified. It's always justified. And especially when, you know, from the outside, it's like, oh, my gosh, this person makes such a big deal. They're making mountains out of molehills. They're exaggerating. They're so intense. They never relax. They never settle. They, they overschedule. They are always finding a fight or something to argue about, and they can justify it. And from the inside, it's, there's a constant sense of anxiety constant sense of being out of tune with everyone and the whole world around you. There's a sense that something is always going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. Always. And when you live that way, like when your sensory organs are directing you, they're filtered, sorry, like a filter system is set to find, to be attuned to the next trauma the next thing that's the, wrong the next thing that's wrong the next stressor it's like a match on the the strike pad it's just it's it's been sitting there it's ready and it will go off and light that match with the smallest thing and it will burn down the house and everyone around but it feels from the inside like it's so justified the intensity the exaggeration is justified because I know I'd mentioned before I had sensory processing mm-hmm. issues as a kid. And so what you might find is like a quiet sound, it's it's over it was overwhelming to me as a kid. And and is is misophonia the the, the word mm-hmm. for, for what you yeah. had or have? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah. Like when my dad would drink water, it, it yeah. I would have to, I would scream and leave the table. You know, and sometimes I'll have guests on yeah. who have dry mouths, 
And I just, five minutes into the interview, I'm just thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be an editing nightmare because <laughs> with, with all of the guests I have that have sensory yeah, uh, yeah. issues, yeah. Uh, many of them have misophonia. Yeah. I don't want to put that out there for them. <laughs> and so I, I do the best job that I can, but sometimes it's, it's that, hard. That's so sweet of you. Yeah. That's, really, that's really sweet. I love that. I'm okay now. I mean, I was always okay, but I have, um, you know, a lot of trauma therapy work, a lot of other uh, osteopathic work, and I, a lot of work. On you. On me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've done a lot of work, but (laughs) I've also received a lot and, and processed a lot. And, you know, a lot of my symptoms as a kid that exhibited as, um, you know, learning disabilities, for example, severe ADHD, um, disappeared once I did my trauma work. And what was the first trauma work you did? I think it was with Peter. Peter somatic Levine. experiencing, yeah. And, um, I did somatic experiencing, and it was one of the most profound moments I've had in, mm, in, in my life, not yeah. only in terms of a, an emotional release, yeah. but a spiritual, yeah. like, oh, yeah. the universe yeah. has reached its hand down. Mm, and shivers. And yeah. is, it, it, there were so many like details to it yeah. um, that just, it just felt like th- yeah. this is not a... This is not coincidence. Yeah. All of these things are aligning, and yeah. the world is opening yeah. the door for me to heal. Yeah. And so That's what beautiful. did it look like for you? And and explain to the listener what yeah. uh, somatic experiencing is. Yeah. And who Peter Levine is. Yeah, of course. Uh, so Peter Levine is a... Um, he is the creator of somatic experiencing, which, you know, Peter studied a lot of different modalities, somatic modalities... Um, and it's and, and really helped put uh, trauma trauma informed therapy on the map, especially body oriented body therapy. yes yeah. but he did something really unique in addition to that, which was like humanize trauma before it was you know in the same way we oh, so many people look at addiction of like why are you doing this why don't you stop why don't you stop? And it was the same with trauma. Why can't you just snap out of it? And Peter was really able to deconstruct the physiology in a way. And, and he do, studied animals, correct? I studied animals. Absolutely. And used that information to really help us come into contact with our primal, our primal way of organizing, our primal way of our primal language, which is sensation breath in the body and that's where trauma is stored it's in that primal aspect of what we call the implicit so the the body story the the body memory holding on muscles you don't even realize you're holding on to absolutely and it's stored there and it you can't access that through talking because that's you know we i i often referred to like english is my second language movement sensation is our universal language that we all share as our first language and that's the the access point into actually releasing trauma from the body is going back because before we could speak we might have experienced trauma 
And we experienced it at that primal level. And so Peter, that's, that was Peter's work. And, and there's, you know, you talk about it as a spiritual experience and I, I couldn't agree more that sense of returning home to yourself, that it's safe, that you're whole, that you've put the pieces of you that have been fragmented back into all of who you are is a spiritual experience. When, when you, and when I say you, we, yeah. the listeners, sure. everybody who's experienced trauma, yeah. when you experience an unsafe moment or moments mm-hmm. when your brain is forming, yeah. nobody comes and turns it off and says the world is now safe. Yeah. Well, the part of your brain that is that primal sense that it experiences the trauma on a body level doesn't have a time signature or timestamp. Right. So the past is the present. We are reliving and we are living out of that trauma and what is stuck in time. Right. And it doesn't seem that way no. because our brain is in, you know, today's Linear time. March, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. That stuff happened to yeah. me a long time ago. Yeah. And so you're out of sync. Yeah. And that's what it's like to feel out of sync as so many people do who turn towards drama as a means of survival. What did you discover as you start about yourself as you yeah. started doing trauma therapy? What were some some traumas that were released in you or addressed? Yeah. Or were there any that you weren't even aware of? Um, or were you aware of them? There there was a lot of bound messy boundaries as a kid. And so that led to very confusing senses of my own sexuality that led to feelings of enmeshment and codependency. Bodily autonomy? Yeah. I didn't really know who I was because I mostly lived as a dissociated ghost my entire childhood. Oh, that's such a great word, dissociated ghost. I'm going to form a band. (laughs) Can I play the drums? (laughs) Like driving. I've never played the drums before. (laughs) You can dance out front and kick yourself in the head. Oh, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Yeah. You'd like that little drama. <laughs> so a dissociated ghost. Yeah. What, what does that mean? I remember moments. I, I knew it by the opposite. So I mean, there were moments, little moments as when I was growing up that I felt dimensional. That's the best way I could describe it as a kid. And I remember going to my parents and saying, sometimes I feel like um, not flat. And they had no idea what the hell I was talking about. I don't about. have any idea what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> it was a body experience. Like I felt like two-dimensional. I, I felt flat. Like I didn't. F- oh, okay. Like, I thought you said not flat. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I felt flat. I got you. And um, in affect, in body, I felt like I, I didn't have a roundness. Hollow. A hollow, empty. Yeah. And there were moments where I felt filled, like little tiny brief spaces. Speckles of speckles of moments. I don't know if you can say speckles of moments, but I am. Yeah. And um, and I remember saying to my parents, "That's what I want." And they they had no idea what I was talking about, so they put me in therapy, as as you know, it's expected. Good call. Good call. <laughs> yeah. And the therapist had no idea what I was talking about because you know, in the eighties, Peter's work and other you know major players in the trauma world hadn't hadn't had such a big platform yet. Right. I know if a child and children have said similar things to me when I worked in pediatrics and I was like, I know what you're talking about. 
or we discovered what they were talking、right. about together through play or through drawing, yeah, drawing or whatever it took to get there. But when I was a kid, they were just like, "You was crazy," <laughs> and you know, I, I, yeah, it, even that in itself, that the missed opportunities to be seen in my ghostliness, <laughs> you know, it,、yeah. it's sad. And、um, certainly, why I became a therapist because I was like, I I want to make sure people never experience someone who's there to help them missing them.、Mm-hmm. And of course, it's not possible to be perfect at that. No, and, and I mean, <laughs> trauma is so complicated. People are so complicated. Yeah.、Um, It, it's not surprising that a lot of times there are disappointing experiences、yeah. in in therapy, not for lack of trying or or somebody's、yeah. in, expertise at what they do. It's just maybe not the right modality. And you will meet people who want to be met but can't be met. What and what do you mean by that? Well, I just wrote a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk. Let's talk about it. One of the aspects of an addiction to drama. Is I say I want you. You don't see me. I don't feel you validating me. And you say I really am here with you, but I can't actually absorb that. I can't receive that because that level of vulnerability and intimacy feels like death. It feels so dangerous because that level of vulnerability and intimacy could lead me closer to all the things I have numbed away. Which is my deep-seated pain, and I will do anything to avoid that pain, including finding things that are so distracting that create this outer layer of suffering. Oh boy, oh boy, yeah, the collecting things. Yeah,、uh, hobbies are awesome. Yeah, but they're. Can be oftentimes a quality to it that is so obsessive、yeah. that that you can't even find yourself focusing on something that somebody is saying when you're at dinner with them.、Yeah. That was、yeah. w- when I st- first started woodworking. That's how it was with me. I, I somebody would be moving their mouth, and I would be thinking about what kind of interlocking joint am I going to use for this table that I'm making, and I. While yes, there was passion for woodworking, I look back on it、yeah. now, and a lot of it was escaping trauma. Yeah, not wanting to be、yeah. in my body, not、yeah. wanting to be in my head. But、mm. mm. I kind of, I kind of cut you off there. No, no, your woodworking was my meditations.、Yeah. Like I, I had a therapist in my mid late twenties who kind of set me in motion, and、um, she said at one point she was like, "Do you feel like anything you're doing is contributing to your own suffering?" And I was like, "Well, that's a rude question." <laughs> just say, How dare you? <laughs> well, I never, well, I never. <laughs>、um, <laughs> and I said, "I don't think so, but maybe."、Um, and I was like, "But I think I would know because I meditate every day. I do yoga every day." And she pauses and she says, "Hmm." What a beautiful place to hide! Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> What? 
That, that, those are two pretty uh, <laughs> strong statements. Pretty strong statements, kind of condescending. And I, it was like she knocked me back in my body for the first time in years. Yeah. And I'm not saying there wasn't truth to what no, she said. It's she just like, wow. Me. She read me hard. And that, that session, and I remember it so clearly, has changed the course of my life. That's amazing that you were open to it because I think the majority <laughs> of people would have been like, and you can fuck off. Oh, yeah. And we're done. Oh, wait. We can say fuck on this show? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. all I'm going to say yeah. from now on. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she told you that you, that that you were hiding. She basically said, without saying it, that perhaps you're addicted to drama. I mean, that's amazing to me that she could put that together just based on... Well, I suppose you were telling her stories about Oh, I could not stop talking about my ex. And I kept repeating every story. I vented everything. I could never let anything go. Mm. I took one small situation with friends and blew it way out of proportions that I'm under attack. Oh, the high of indignation. Doesn't feel good. We don't need... (laughs) we, We... you know, yeah. there's no responsibility no. in being indignant. No. We get to look down at everybody. Yeah. We get to talk about ourselves and we yeah. get to be a victim. Yeah. And, you know, we can say that. And and it, there's a way in which even right now when we like the listeners and you and I can go, oh, the victimhood. And there's a judgment around it. There's a bias around it. But there is a truth that that is how they perceive the world because the filters of their organs, their I mean, their sensory organs. The They're way feeling they see, pain. They not just feel pain, but it feels like the world is against them because they don't have any agency, because they have no boundaries. So everything is coming at them. Everything is overwhelming. There is no sense of self to be in relation to the world. And so the world comes at them. And they don't have a sense of where the world ends and where they begin? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's this radical, very challenging process of empathy to go, to turn around and say, because we all know someone addicted to drama. Oh, yeah. We all do. Like, you know, for those of you who are listening, take a moment just to think about at least one, if not everyone. Lost a close friend in the last yeah. year. Yeah. Th- a friend of 30 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so many of us can relate to that mm-hmm. because we have been in that situation, that friend, that parent, that sibling who's stirring shit up for no apparent reason, who's always playing the victim and whose presence is exhausting just terribly exhausting and it's so easy to be like oh why are you always the victim why are you making life harder than it is because that is their way of surviving and it is such a radically hard thing to turn around and have empathy for that it is especially when it affects us i I, yeah i discovered (laughs) that the only way that i could have empathy for them was by pulling back yes and setting boundaries because then it's so hard to have empathy when you feel threatened yes by by somebody and it's not just that you like in addition to feeling threatened they are pulling you in like a tornado because that is the way of relationship for those who are addicted to drama the 
they can't have like this this what we're having right now we're sitting across from each other it's intimate it's it's vulnerable we're sharing but what what someone who's addicted to drama could do is i could get you in my vortex and that feels like proximity and strangely enough it is the closest thing to belonging that they will feel but it is only through the chaos only through the crisis that that relating is possible it's wild and from the inside you actually feel good even though you have stirred shit up even though you will likely lose a friend because in that moment where you the bystander are in their vortex they feel belonging is it because that's the most vulnerability they can do that's vulnerable for them that is the currency of love that they can tolerate yeah and from the outside you were like fuck i could just give you a hug i could just tell you i love you and you are enough but that cannot be received so what's it take to to release that trauma? It, 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 I mean, obviously, in the modalities yeah. that you've experienced and you talk about and yeah. some of the ones you work in, it's nonverbal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different steps to releasing trauma and a lot of different approaches. Let's talk about the ones that you personally yeah. experienced as a client. Yeah. I mean, for me... Um, it's important to know that my barometer of safety was twisted by my trauma. So what I thought as safe, which was like living in a city that would exhaust me. Um, I lived in New York City for 20 right. years, right. <laughs> to be clear where it was. Right. To, to live um, in a, prof to work in a profession that I was never good enough. And that was always stressful working with <laughs> celebrities was a beautiful mirror to being like oh um no matter how far you ascend up you will you might never feel like you actually deserve that or are good enough right and i was in that process ascending in my career doing this massive job and going i'm worthless and in the bind of that is also a way of revving your own self up to never settling in yourself so when i say my barometer of safety was twisted settling relaxing felt absolutely dangerous it felt like giving up no it there was a reflex response you know how um there's thing called a relaxation reflex so you start to settle you have a deep breath your blood pressure changes for those of us who are or have been addicted to drama, so using drama as a means of surviving, there's a activation reflex. You start to settle. You start to come to that threshold like there's a line. And anything underneath that line is going to get you closer to being in contact or in touch with the feelings, the pain, the trauma itself. So, you, so stillness is to stillness be is dangerous. Yeah. Because it brings you closer to that line potentially. Space is dangerous. 
And so like you have to stay above that line, stay above that threshold or you might perish. It actually feels like you might die if you cross that line into relaxation, which is crossing the line into the deep, dark shit of your childhood. So I would imagine, you know, let's take workaholics, for example. I would imagine that's for a large percentage of them, that's what they experience is to be still is to suffocate. Yeah. Yeah. Look, drama can show up in many different ways. Overscheduling, you know, uh, piling work on top of yourself, doing a shit ton of graduate degrees (laughs) in schooling. Not that I know that one. Um, (laughs) You know, um, it, it might look like trolling. It might be like, oh, I'm justified in my belief system, so I'm going to go take other people down for theirs. Yeah. Oh, that, that is such a – we were talking a little bit yeah. about it before we got on the, on the mics, yeah. and it, it is such a um, – I mean, it's no news to anybody that Twitter is filled with you know, people just looking to destroy other people thinking that they are social justice warriors. And not that there shouldn't be some social oh, yeah, justice sh- movements absolutely. out there, yeah. but I think a lot of people are uh, filtering it through their own personal trauma, and they feel that it's up to them to save the world and teach the world how to act. Yeah, it's not just those in social justice, because it's, it's it, the, the technique of... Um, depositing your trauma into a into somebody else's mistake or what your mm-hmm. perception of someone else didn't do exactly what you would have done or whatever it is that technique crosses all lines of politics all lines of gender mm-hmm. it doesn't discriminate it is a tool that we all have access to and use we all have the technique, the capacity to distract ourselves from ourselves by depositing our underlying feelings that we can and won't attend to onto something else. And those are called secondary emotions that we receive or get as we deposit it onto something or someone else. We can never truly process a secondary feeling. We can't. We can only metabolize the feelings that are truly within us, not the ones we manufacture by avoiding our feelings. Gotcha. And there's a thing called drama bonding. So great for the internet. I post something about your belief systems. There's going to be enough people, and I can manufacture the story that not only keeps me revved up, but also revs other people up. And if you have any even remote history, it's akin in some way, experience that's akin in some way to what I'm sharing, you're going to bond. It's that sense of belonging. And it, the, the more akin you've, uh, experience you have had that's similar to mine, the easier it is to pull you in. And you will add logs to the fire. And all of a sudden, we are in a huge blaze, and no one has actually addressed the underlying emotional experience that, the, that each individual has had. They're only responding to the fire they have built. The target. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the that, target of that fire. And, and that's kind of what, how the mob mentality yeah. Uh, comes, yeah. comes about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
when we de- you know like you know there's been a lot of wild events in the last couple of years mm-hmm. and we can go oh my gosh how did that happen how could people just storm a capital and or uh, cancel this individual or whatever it is and it actually makes a lot of sense how it's possible there's a lot of hurt there's a lot of pain in our culture and the world in humans there's a lot of transgenerational pain that we might not even know about as individuals and if we are not given the space the time the permission to truly process that because whether it's pervasive or we just didn't have the resources or we didn't have the family members to we hold that in our body and we will feel will find like i was saying before we will find the conditions we will seek or create the conditions that let us put deposit some of those feelings into because it feels like purging it feels like letting off steam yeah. and it it um i imagine gives the uh illusion to the person that they're accomplishing something yeah yeah there's a euphoria that actually occurs yeah. in the brain um it's the same as taking a um pain medication so it's interesting that so many of the things about indignation and drama that you talk yeah. about, um, and you use the word addicted in yeah. your in your book. I'm a recovering addict, and yeah. it was years ago that I began yeah. to look at when I would get indignant, yeah. how drug like yeah. it felt, yeah. and uh, and I and as I began to look around me, yeah. I thought, oh, there is a whole slew of people that are addicted to being indignant. My mom yeah. being one of them. Yeah. I, I could set the phone down for a half hour and mm. go away and come yeah. back and she would still be on a rant about somebody that yeah. she didn't like. Yeah. Can I ask you, did that change with age? Did it get progressively worse or less? No. It was no, consistent. It was, it was consistent. It was there when I was a kid. Yeah. It's, it might even have, have gotten worse as she got older. But, okay. But not, it's pretty, pretty much the same. I don't curious. have contact with her anymore. But oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, not that I, it was just a, a curiosity that sort of stemmed, because I, I know what you mean. Like I, that sort of. I didn't remember that present in my family and my parents as a kid. And then um, it was, it became present after my parents retired. And I even said, are you, are you bored? Like, do you, do you feel like you have too much time on your hands? Because I noticed there's, there's a lot more. Um, I just was gentle and said, there's a lot more like disturbances or frustrations with people. And um, like someone who, had to cancel a haircut because they were sick. You, you, I heard my mom say once she was like, Ugh, she's always canceling. It's always something. And I was like, how many times has she canceled? And she was like, well, just this time, but it's, it's always <laughs> something. And I was like, but, but now mom, you're responding. It's like a feedback loop. You're responding to the bigness of your response, which was, which like what she said was actually really kind. Like, it's like, hey, I'm I'm not feeling well. Right. Like if I said to you, I'm not feeling well. I I'm not gonna go out to lunch with you today. Would you be understanding? Yeah. 
And, and so anyways, I said, are you bored? And she was like, no, I'm busier than ever. And I was like, well, how are you filling your time? Are you filling your time with these types of stories? <laughs> I bet she didn't like that question. She, she actually. Was she pretty open? No. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. No. Um, she heard me. She said she will think about it, yeah. which is. Um, That's a good start. I think she knows how to deal with me. <laughs> Gotcha. There's so many years, which is a great response when someone's, you know, like frustrated with you. Is and like, were you a PhD at that point? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. She's thrown that at me, too. She was oh, like, Mr. Not, PhD. Yeah. <laughs> They're very supportive and well, loving. I don't need yeah. a diploma to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> she heard me and, and, and she said, you're right. Actually, a few months ago, she said, you're right. I, your sister has given me similar feedback. I don't know why I'm being more exaggerated in my responses than I was. That's fucking huge. Yeah. That is, I mean, that, yeah. that fires me up. When I, when I see somebody yeah. who is battling yeah. survival instincts, yeah. taking over their central nervous system yeah, and absolutely. their brain, yeah. and they can be still enough yeah. and trust somebody enough to say, I'm, I'm going to take that in and think about it. You might be right. That, yeah. that to me is yeah. beautiful. That to yeah. me is a, 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 yeah. a spiritual moment. Yeah. And that, and that level of trust. I mean, I have plenty of clients who we have delved in this material. I've never outrightly said to them, Hey, I think you're addicted to drama. I'll use other language like, Oh, I noticed that we came back to the story that we just processed and I'm noticing, like, it feels like you're revved up again, but I don't feel a connection to the actual material. And and they'll say something like, "Oh, oh yeah, I'm I I I let it go, but I'm I'm like telling it to myself as though I hadn't let it go." Right. And I'm like, "Well, let's check back in. Do you still feel it present in your body?" And they'll say, "No, actually." I just feel the stress of retelling it. And, the, and that discernment, that capacity to tell the difference between what actually needs to process and metabolize and the stories and the narratives that we can use and the other tactics we can use to rev ourselves up away from being grounded and anchored in our own body. So it's, a, it's, like, it's like a strategic way that is so justified of dissociating. Mm-hmm. I mean, what... A shitty way to go through life, and so many of us do it, and I did it yeah. for years, where my body was my enemy. Yeah. Not going to listen to it. Yeah. It's where, uh, yeah. you know, sh there's shame. Yeah. There were things that happened as a, a kid that I don't want to think about, and yeah. I blame myself for some of them. Uh, and you can't get away from your body. It's like, I wish yeah. they would teach that in kindergarten. Make yeah. friends with your arms and your legs and your <laughs> tummy and your face and your shoulders and your hands because they're the only ones you got. And yeah. life is yeah. too fucking long yeah. to be at odds with. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're at constant battle with yourself and you deposit that and project it out and make it a battle with the world mm -hmm. and every other person in there, even if you just do it every once in a while, it's not even that it's a constant. We're really talking about an addiction to drama. 
And, you know, even when I say the word, I, I, and I've seen people post in response to my book and they're like, oh, I don't think someone addicted to drama would like that title to be called addicted to drama. And I was like, um, well, I am addicted to drama and I was, or that was my medicine. It was my way of relieving myself from pain. And so, and that's the exact term I would use to describe my experience. Mm-hmm. I might not use, like I said, I might not use that with a client right away, but we get to that realization. And it's about unpacking the bias around the language because we all, like I said, we all know someone addicted to drama. We've probably called someone a drama king or a drama queen or been called that. And it's derogatory because there has been such little evidence research and evidence deconstructing this as actually a trauma response Mm -hmm. and to empathize and humanize this. And so it comes with the addicted to drama comes with a lot of derogatory bias, which is why I wanted to use the title. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's reclaiming it. Like I love the word queer for that reason. It's like a reclaiming of that word to mean and, and to be joyful and jubilant around it. And and to me, this is a reclaiming of the idea of an addiction to drama from a humanistic, from from an empathetic, from a compassionate perspective of saying, actually, how many people have trauma where you have, ha- it was too much or not enough of something in your life and it overwhelmed your system. And then how many of us did something to avoid our pain? That would be everyone. (laughs) It's a universal experience. Yeah. Yeah. And then just take it one step further. And how many of us might have created an intentionally, unintentionally created situations, found ourselves in situations that were distracting from that pain. And here we are. And it becomes reinforced. There's a dopamine response that says, Hey, this is better because at least we're not feeling that sense of death. And so it's reinforced. Yeah, you're doing great. Stay away. Stay away from that underlying pain. And here, and then we get this cycle, the cycle of getting hits yeah. from being revved up because it has previously or has been part of our life of reinforcing space from our pain there's a line out of the literature in one of my support groups that says we mistook intensity for intimacy Mm. and the first time i heard that i went oh my god Mm. yes yeah and yeah for many of us (laughs) in that support group yeah we went through the phase or we're still in the phase of the relationship isn't exciting after three months or six months who is next? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it, because we thought it was intimacy in the beginning because it was exciting. Yeah. And not that was, intimacy and excitement can't go hand in hand, yeah. but excitement in and of itself is yeah. intimacy. And that was news to Absolutely. me. Absolutely. And those those high beginnings, those... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, it just gets me hot and bothered just thinking yeah. about one. Yeah. But it it's... We all... You know, it's not sustainable. And... You know, the the sort of stress response of an initial relationship, the anxiety, the mm-hmm. nervousness, 
um, the anticipated validation. Anticipation. It's also a different hormone process in the first three months from the rest of relationship. And, you know, one of the things to recognize is like, for those addicted to drama, there's a whole chapter dedicated to how we do relationships. Mm -hmm. We being, you know, those on the, the propensity uh, scale of drama and, you know, it's big highs, big lows, not a lot in between. No. And, and for addicts, that's a terrible place, or I should say an unfamiliar place to live is yeah. in the middle. We do zero or 10. Five is like there's no Mars gray. to us. There's, yeah, yeah. There's no gray. And, um, you know, I have a client I was, I was working with and very much, uh, identifies as addicted drama. And she was having less high emotions. Like they weren't at a seven or eight or a nine or a 10. They were at like a two or three. And she was expressing something and she said, am I depressed? And I was like, sorry, what? What do you mean? She's like, well, I just am not feeling emotions lately. And I said, is it possible that you have found a lower register of emotions, like a, a, a two or a three in the, in the bigness of it, the fullness or the intensity of it, the scale of it. And she was like, oh, yeah, it is here. I just didn't recognize it. <laughs> I hadn't, my aperture of awareness hadn't opened to that where it wasn't at that higher level. Right. And so I thought, oh, I must not be having it. And that's a big learning process with those who are addicted to drama is learning how, what is the exact amount of energy I need in a stress response to adapt? What is the amount of emotion What's I need <laughs> in order to feel seen by myself and possibly seen by other people? That's a pretty deep question. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, if you grow up in a household, did you, did you have siblings? I had one brother and a cousin who lived with us okay. for a while. So that's a, that's a fair amount of distracted parents mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. like it's it's you don't get one-on-one right and even if you, you were the only child you might not get that much attention right. <laughs> so often we're competing for attention you know there's only so much attention to go around and we as humans want our needs met yeah that is how we feel alive that is, or that's yeah. how we feel safe yeah and and in in my case for my yeah. mom it was unwanted attention it was inappropriate mm. okay. enmeshing yeah. parentifying yeah, yeah. sexual kind of creepy yeah. yeah 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 it's that it's that boundary rupture that invasiveness exactly. and it's the same it's it, whether it's too much or too little it's trauma yeah and you know what what forms out of that need like to be loud enough to be heard or loud enough to say like to get away in some cases is that we learn that loud or the bigness of our response is how people hear how people receive and can see us and so that becomes the status quo of the volume to which we express I see. and the, experience ourselves. I see. We begin, we begin to believe that, that is, uh, that's our currency. Yeah. We believe that is an 8 or 9 or 10 is the only way to be seen or heard. Yeah. Even by ourselves. Wow. So, so uh, go ahead. You were going to say something? No, I was going to do a dance for you. <laughs> 
So uh, one of the things that you uh, get into in yeah. the book, which is obviously hugely important when it comes to trying to break the cycle of addiction to drama, yeah. is uh, boundaries. Yeah. And and if you could also throw tools yep. in there as well. Because, well, obviously boundaries are a tool. But. Yeah. I, you know, I, I am a little frustrated with um, how boundaries have been talked about on – Mostly like social media. I'll just say it. Mm-hmm. I'm frustrated. Um, not frustrated enough to do anything about it besides have this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Are we creating drama right I, here? We can. Do you want to? Do you want to give a, the audience a little it. example? Yeah, yeah. No. Um, dra- so let, let me ex- show how I could do drama. So I could use specific language. I could use significant metaphors. I could say. Uh, I could shift from I'm frustrated to. To making a statement like people are being irresponsible with how they talk about drama. Uh, excuse me, boundaries. Right. You see how I'm already yes. creating a much bigger stress response. Yeah, you're using a zero or ten mm-hmm. rather than. I'm putting an exclamation mark in the end of that. And sentence. it's about them rather than how you're experiencing them. it. Yeah, so that's called dramatic narrative uh-huh. as opposed to reflective narrative. Like I'm feeling this frustration in me when I see how people are talking about boundaries right. right now. And and there's a part of me that feels like, ooh, I want a voice in that. So that's a reflective narrative. Right. So yeah, I could make this whole thing much more dramatic. I could get on social media and start posting about it, finding other people to throw logs on that fire and drama mm-hmm. bonding. Yeah. And never actually processing my emotions along the way about, right. which was, I feel frustrated and maybe, mm, yeah. So boundaries are so often referred to as walls. Yes. No. They're absolutes. And when we think about a boundary, like, and, and I, you know, people talk about like, we have our energy boundaries and our time boundaries. And we, we forget, like, what is our first primal boundary? It's the womb. It is our first experience of a membrane around us that is a buffer between stimulus and response. It is, it, and it's flexible, right? If a womb wasn't able to grow, we couldn't grow. And so a, a boundary is actually adaptable. And it gives us a, something to push into, which gives us a sense of where we are and who we are by the edges of ourselves and the edges of our space. And why that's important is because if we take it into absolutes, there's no mobility. There's no flexibility. Our boundaries are meant to be adaptive, meaning how much yes and how much no versus yes or no. And, there's, and that might sound nuanced and subtle, but it's actually not. Because if we look at addiction to drama, everything is in the polar extremes, it's either this or it's that. Right. That's trauma language. I'm in love with you or, or I hate I'm you. burning your shit on the front lawn. Oh, have you done that? <laughs> I have not. I've actually uh, <laughs> not much of a drama. I'm a shutdown person. Oh. My drama is is inside. Mm-hmm. The self-talk the is self-talk. dramatic. Yeah. And, and that's a great example, actually, because drama doesn't have to always be exhibited on the outside. It can be our own internalized 
drama, the stories we create, the stories we live in,、mm-hmm. and then our collapse around that. Some people go into the explosion as part of the the revving up, the activation, and some people go into the collapse. And、it's all part of the same cycle.、Yeah. It's interesting. The only time I do the external is when I'm adrenalized playing hockey,、oh. and then、uh, I will yell. Yeah, I will, you know, slam my stick. I, I will be an asshole,、mm. and I usually try to then, you know, calm down,、yeah. reflect, go, what's going on with me outside、yeah. the rink? Because、yeah. that's usually、yeah. there's something. Yeah. That I hate or don't like about myself or my life,、mm. and、uh, but outside of the rink, yeah, ne- almost never raise my voice. Yeah,、uh, extreme sports, sports—they're all depositories, possible but depositories for us to place that unprocessed emotions, trauma into, and into something that's extreme to avoid the underlying experience. Yep, it's brilliant, it's- and it's amazing <laughs> if you use it、yeah. as a teaching tool, which I finally did because、yeah. I was so fucking miserable. Yeah, it led me to understand the trauma、yeah. that was related to it—the trauma of、yeah. not feeling interesting enough for my dad's attention,、mm-hmm. and the trauma of my mom violating my yeah. body yeah. as a as a child.、Yeah. Uh, it it. Was so helpful for me to understand that. Oh, this is my central nervous system.、Yeah. This is not me, the person. Yeah. Even though this is part of me, this、yeah. isn't the totality of who I am.、Yeah. Is not this、yeah. angry, pissed off、uh, person. Yeah. But this is something I need to look at. Yeah. And it was boundaries、yeah. that were the solution. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's there's something to say about like hockey or any any activity, especially. Movement activity can can be a place where we can mobilize that unprocessed energy, that trauma,、mm-hmm. or it can be a place where we deposit that energy but not actually process it through. Right, and we, I think you're describing it perfectly in hockey.、Yes. It's like, can this be a place where I make contact with my feeling and use the movement to help relieve what I couldn't process before?、Yes. Versus, can I use this? Oh, that asshole pushed me. Right. I'm gonna push him back, and then I'm not actually processing the underlying thing. I'm. Going、right. in and creating a drama, right? And then I'm going to talk shit about him in the、yeah. locker room about what a shitty player he is.、Yeah. Try to get everybody to weigh in、yes. on that、yes. and put some some logs on the fire, rather than going.、Yeah. What was my part in it? My part in、yeah. it was that I overreacted,、yeah. and I was frustrated. Yes, and so I find that when I'm in that state, even though I want to break my stick, you know, and and scream at somebody, yeah. I'll try to sit on it. I'll try to look at what my part is in it, and it's almost always that I was afraid that I wasn't doing well enough,、mm. and my teammates were disappointed in me, or I looked bad.、Yeah. And so, when we shake hands after、yeah. the game, that guy that I wanted to punch in the face five minutes earlier, I say to him, I pull him aside and I say, "I'm I'm sorry.、Yeah. I, I overreacted. I'm really frustrated.、Yeah. You know, please and- forgive me." And how beautiful of an example this is of being able to deconstruct all the layers that are there, and versus just being staying in the drama. It's so easy to stay in the It's drama. It's so easy, especially when people are reinforcing and enabling you in it,、mm-hmm. and you're having 
that euphoric sense of empowerment and righteousness, righteousness, power, purpose, meaning, all the things that are fundamentally part of our existential existence. Yeah. I mean, how can it not be electrifying when your negative self-talk all day long is, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you do this wrong, you're not enough, you're not enough. We finally get something. Yeah. Where we're like, I'm in the right here. How can that not be electrifying? Yeah. Yeah. Or, and if you, part of that, you know, negative self-talk or part of uh, a a response to trauma is we numb. We numb to protect. When you have an injury, let's say you punch that guy in the face, your hand is going to swell up. There's going to we call that inflammation, and inflammation is there to essentially feel less. You in a stress response, similarly, your muscles engorge. Yeah, there's more blood in them, mm-hmm. and that that compresses on the nerves to make them less sensitive, and you become more numb. So yes. you know what we see for those of who have experienced trauma, and especially as it manifests in addiction to drama, there's a lot of tension in the body. Oh, yeah. And that tension is in part to create numbness. It's a protective mechanism. I never thought about that. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, you know, physiology. <laughs> I love that it, it all starts with this. You know, yeah. I, I love um, when you guys who are there in the, in the trenches doing the heavy lifting uh-huh. can come out of it and say, this isn't woo-woo. Here's, here's the data. Yeah. And, and this is the, this is the wild piece about it too. this is the cycle of pain is that, that bracing that you did to protect yourself or, or the, you know, the stress response that never got to be actualized, all those things that create sort of the pinching in the nerves. I mean, I'm using more simplified language, right? Um, but that that creates less sensitivity or eventually leads to numbness or the inflammation that develops. And when inflammation happens, there's not new um, new fluid coming in. it's It's basically uh, it's a, it's creating stagnancy. And then that stagnancy is, you know, the cells are pooping. let's <laughs> right. <laughs> they're metabolic waste. Right. and that 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 metabolic waste, that sort of cellular fecal matter, just stays in that, so that those and are makes toxins. it toxic, right? Yeah. Wow. So a toxic person is literally toxic. A hundred percent. Wow. And the body registers that ecosystem of toxicity as pain. And so it says, brace more become more numb and avoid the pain at all costs. So the more pain we have, the more pain uh, that we, we are creating. Another way of saying that is we've created our own pain out of surviving. So that would, and, and our own ways of numbing that pain and our own ways of avoiding that pain. So what you just described then would explain why sometimes when people are doing the yoga pose where mm-hmm. they open their hips, mm-hmm. they start crying. Yeah, yeah. You've moved, you've been able to move past the bracing and there's a lot of release. There's a discharge of that energy. There's literally new fluids moving in that haven't been able to access that more toxic ecosystem. 
wow. or one part of my body suddenly feel, is connected to another part. Anything else you'd like to, to share before we wrap up? Um, I can only kick my head with my right <laughs> leg, not my left. You're going to have a and tough I'm, time and, doing it with the desk right And here. I'm really embarrassed yeah. by that. And I... Um, <laughs> Uh, I think one of the things I would say is, um, and before you say that, where can people, if people are interested in getting somatic experiencing, where can they find it? A somatic experiencing itself. Yeah. Um, you can check out Peter Levine's, uh, website or Ergos Institute, uh, somatic experiencing, uh, Institute, uh, there's a lot of practitioners out there, and there's a lot of other Hakomi, Gestalt. There's a lot of beautiful body-oriented therapy modalities okay. that really, that really help. Um, you know, and every therapist I've ever talked to is like, "Oh, I know clients who are addicted to drama. They're the ones that, no matter how much care you give, it can never be good enough, or you're always wrong, or they. If you try to stop the venting." And actually process you're attacked or you're you're dangerous or you're not listening. Right. But but and, and this was in my research, and yet none of them were like, Well, I don't know what to do. Like I just sort of like I just sit there and take it, or I you know, it's it's hard to unpack because it's a it's really a complex phenomenon that's built so many layers on top of the trauma that really push people away. Yeah. And so it's hard to get close enough to the behaviors themselves, which are the so well protected and justified that to, to make enough space in the behavioral pattern to get below and take that, that ride into the sub basement where the, the trauma is being held. Um, so it's not an easy task, and it takes a long time. <laughs> said an understatement. Yeah, I mean, but it's so worth it. I, it's so funny. I was on a yeah. <clears throat> uh, video Zoom <clears throat> support group meeting right before you came, mm. and the very thing that we were talking about was going through the process of of withdrawal mm. from addic- addictive behavior, yep. and that it is the most. And I'm talking about process addictions, yeah. like yeah. acting out sexually, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. It is the most valuable, painful experience, mm. that withdrawal experience, because on the other side of it yeah. is amazing freedom and clarity. Yeah. But it is a fucking shit show. Yeah. Sitting in that pain as it comes oh. out, it's the, oh. it's the worst. I don't wish it on anybody. No. And yet you wish it for everyone. Yeah, that they go through it. That they go not through, through the it. pain. Not for the, the pain, yeah, yeah. But for the clarity. But we have to contact the pain. That's the thing, is that's what we've been avoiding. Yeah. And, and it's so, not going anywhere. It's, not it's like ignoring Wherever it. you go, there it is. It, it drives the bus, man. It <laughs> yeah. drives the bus. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, your book is called Addicted to Drama, and then the subtitle is Healing Dependency on Crisis and Chaos in Yourself and Others. Uh, anything else? Uh, I, I hope that this book, you know, support this book is really dedicated to, to the, 
the individuals who have people around them who are addicted to drama just as much as the book is dedicated to those who are addicted. And it's, yes. it's really for both. And how do we heal in both situations? Right. Because if you're in proximity to someone addicted to drama, guess what? You're a frontline worker. You are a frontline <laughs> worker and you are having their, well, let me say it this way, their reactions, their stress their life in stress is contagious. If you are in proximity to it, it has rubbed off on your nervous system. And so there's healing for you to do as well. And so the book goes into that quite a bit of, of how do we navigate? Do we have to break up with every person addicted to drama? Or how do I start to heal myself as someone who's in proximity to someone and create boundaries like you talked about. Yeah, flexible boundaries. Flexible yeah. boundaries that allow me to adapt because, you know, a, like we were saying before, a wall just guards me from the world and the world from me. But a boundary allows me to change and adapt to meet and all the variations of being met and meeting. And the good thing, I, I think that I really like about learning boundaries yeah. is it is a crash course on nuance. Mm, mm. Yeah. 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 Scott, thank you so much for coming by, man, and kudos on the, on the book. Thank you so much. What is uh, your website and where can people find you on social media? Absolutely. So it's uh, www. <laughs> so it's um, drscottlyons.com. And Lyons is L-Y-O-N-S. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's D-R, not doctor spelled out. So okay. D-R, Scott Lyons. And on the website is um, you can find out more about the book as well as there's a free quiz, uh, two quizzes. One is, are you addicted to drama? And the second one that is, do you know someone addicted to drama? And um, they're, they're fun quizzes. They, they're really informative and um, they're uh, a, ver a variation of what's in the book in terms of quizzes. And, um, you know, they're fun to share. There's some cute photos with it, too. <laughs> nice. And uh, my, I'm on Instagram at uh, Dr. Scott Lyons. And I, I heard I'm on TikTok. <laughs> the same as well. Maybe you're kicking yourself in the head I, on TikTok. I, who knows what's on there? <laughs> really enjoyed talking to him. Many thanks to uh, Dr. Scott Lyons. Be sure to uh, check his book out. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, before we dive into some surveys, um, we could use some support on Patreon. You can also support us through through PayPal. PayPal, you can do a one-time or a recurring monthly, and Patreon is only recurring monthly. But uh, with Patreon, uh, you also uh, get 
occasional photos, you know, pictures of Gracie, some of my music, an occasional bonus episode, but it means a lot to me, and the podcast could really uh, use some financial support. So, uh, patreon.com slash mentalpod, and you can also do a Venmo uh, donation at mentalpod. So uncomfortable doing those, but got to do it. Got to do it. All right, some surveys. This is from the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Mr. Winter, and he's 23 years old. How would you you like people to think of you? I want to be remembered as a good person who managed to turn his mental suffering into meaningful art which helped others. How does it feel writing that? It makes me feel everything, hope and energy and the thought of turning my suffering into art, creating something beautiful and meaningful in a world that is often neither of those two things. I feel like that is what I was put here to do, even though I don't believe in meant to be. Then, a crippling feel of pressure and self-doubt. There's no guarantee that I will make the most of my life and achieve my goals, and how could I ever, how could I ever when I'm not good enough? I want to overcome the crippling fatigue and anxiety I experience every day from my ADHD, but I feel like I'm not good enough to do it. Then, frustration and self-hatred. Why can't I just be good enough? Why do I have to ruin everything for myself? Why did I have to be born this way? Then I feel meaningless, and it makes me want to give up everything I've worked so hard for. Thank you for sharing that, and what a great example of the cycle of black and white thinking that we get trapped into. I struggle with with it a lot. Just feelings of like gratitude, and I'm where I'm supposed to be, and then all of a sudden just plunging into, I'm a fraud, I did this wrong, I'm not doing life right, blah, blah, blah. Uh, How would you use a time machine? I would go back in time and observe one of my many childhood panic attacks, not to see myself but to see my parents, to see how they responded to it and what private conversation they shared afterwards. I want to understand their reasoning behind not getting me professional help, understand why when they both suffer from anxiety, panic panic attacks, and depression, they decided not to talk to me about any of those things, why they let their child stay confused, scared, and frustrated when when they could have made everything easier just by naming these things to me. They probably didn't even talk about it at all. I want to see it that I can, so that I can finally feel justified in being as fucked up as I am today and hopefully feel less self-hatred. Or maybe I would use the time machine to go watch one of the many fights I had with my parents, probably the one when they called the police to try and forcefully institutionalize me in the psych ward. They were convinced I had a, quote, split personality, unquote, since I got so angry at them. But I was just angry because they never listened to my words or my needs, and they never apologized. I wonder if that fight went down like I remember. Everything is so hazy. I remember my dad trying to physically fight me. Then I ran to my room, and he kicked the door off its hinges. He never touched me, but it scared the shit out of me. Then I had to talk to the police on the phone and convince them that I was of sound mind. They took my side, and my parents told me that it was impressive how well I could hide my psychotic side. 
I don't know if I could take it watching that, though. I don't know what that would solve in me. I feel like it would just hurt me to see that again. Wow, that is intense. Uh, Write as many of these as you feel like. I'm supposed to feel blank about blank, but I don't. I feel blank. I'm supposed to feel grateful that my parents are financially supporting me, but I don't. I feel ashamed and empty. Ashamed that I'm not not yet mentally stable enough to be financially independent and empty because material things are the only thing my parents have ever gifted me. It feels like they're compensating for all of the trauma they've provided. And I feel like a shitty son that I have to take my gratitude to them. It doesn't make me feel supported. It makes me feel paid off. I'm I'm supposed to feel happy for my girlfriend of six years that she's found a new job and is finally working full-time, but I don't. I feel anxious. She has just as much metal baggage as me, and I'm scared she's taking on more than she can handle. I'm scared that the ridiculously early hours she works will make her sleep quietly degrade and that she is in denial and just pushing through because she feels like she has to. I'm scared that she will get worse again and that one day I'll be the one to find her next to an empty bottle of pills. Wow, those those um those are big, man. Those are big. How does it make you feel writing your feelings out? Drained, but also relieved in a sense. It makes me feel overwhelmed that there is still so much in my past that I haven't been able to unpack yet. It makes me wonder if I ever can. You know, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's, it, it is a lifelong process. And I think one of the greatest surrenders we can do in life is surrendering to the schedule that it's on. As long as we keep the willingness to, to keep moving forward and try to learn and understand ourselves better and have human connection and go to therapy and support groups or whatever it is that's helping us unpack things, then if it's so much easier to surrender. But when we're not taking any action, it gives the mean voice in our brain so much ammunition that tells us things are never going to change. And honestly, if things don't change, things... Things don't change, at least in terms of, you know, the processing stuff and growing emotionally. Do you feel abnormal for feeling what you do? Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? No, it makes sense that I feel like I do given what I've been through, but I still feel abnormal, broken. Like all of this is just an excuse I've invented for living my life like I do. Man, from the the stuff that you described in your childhood... Who wouldn't have a shitload of things to unpack? That is a lot that you experienced. Uh, This is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Lila in the sky with diamonds. She writes, I love when the weather is unusually warm for the season, when it's the dead of winter in Michigan and we have a spring-like thaw. Just for a moment, I feel that sense of hope that comes with early spring sunshine. I love that one. I love when my boyfriend flutters his eyes at me. I love when I have an aha moment in therapy and the rest of the day I feel accomplished for making progress. I love when I can sleep in late on a spring day and I have zero responsibilities. I love when one of the homeless individuals I work with finds stable housing and gives me pause and my hopes are restored if just for a moment. I love when my boyfriend's fat fluffy cat 
he has trained like a dog to greet him when he gets home and chases him around the house. Uh, I love homemade mocha coffees in the morning. I love the fleeting moments of euphoria that come when I'm weaning off my well-butrin for the umpteenth time because I think I don't need it anymore, only to realize a couple of months later that, yes, I do, in fact, need medication to balance my depression and moods. I love the smell of new clothes from a department store. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, yeah, I, I like the, I, I like the smell of a department store, too, especially when you're like, I'm going to get myself a new pair of pants. I love when my young boys, ages 8 and 10, tell me their honest feelings in the heat of the moment, watching them grow and process their emotions with different life events. That is so awesome. That is so awesome. Uh, I fucking love this podcast. I've been listening for over five years, and this is the first of many surveys I plan to fill out. Thank you, Paul, for what you do. Well, thank you for, for saying that and for, uh, for filling out a survey. This is from the Shame and Secret survey. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Peekaboo. Uh, he identifies as straight. He's in his 40s. He says that he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, he says, uh, my parents routinely had large drug parties, coke, weed and blackout levels of alcohol there would be 30 to 50 people at our house getting wasted when i was a little kid i know i was given alcohol and had hits of weed blown in my face all the time many nights i would black out myself as a little kid while i don't remember anything actually happening my body seems to react negatively to intimacy I've been very guarded with my feelings and emotions despite being quite emotionally reactionary at times I feel a large stored well of frustration of which I do not know the origin. While I feel like I've improved the management of it recently, but it always simmers below the surface like the caldera that creates Yellowstone. Is, am I pronouncing caldera right? Ever since I, uh, ever since I can remember, I've masturbated. Some of my earliest memories, three years old-ish, were of me rocking back and forth on my pelvis, grinding my genitals into the floor until I had a wave of pleasure wa wash over me. I had no idea what was going on, but I knew that I loved it. I would perform this behavior often and in front of others because I had no idea what was happening. I just knew that I liked the flood of pleasure it enveloped me in. Eventually, I was compelled to only do it in private by my parents, who knew what was happening but never decided to discuss it with me beyond the requirement to not let others see it happen. I continue to have compulsory uh, masturbation issues and wonder, I think he meant compulsive uh, issues, and wonder if they stem from the wild atmosphere I grew up in as a kid, or if I am just fundam fundamentally wired this way. I don't shame myself for it because it seems to have been a part of me since I can remember. Uh, shaming something that's hardwired into my behavior seems cruel, but at the same time, I do not intend to let that part of me go, literally. 
I've had periods of abstaining from masturbation when I dove headfirst into a church community and studied scriptures, but it would inevitably creep back into my secret behaviors behind closed doors. When I did abstain for a period of several years, I got fat, miserable, unmotivated, and mean. Oh, and hyper-judgmental to others. I became an asshole. My jerk-off persona was far cooler, and ultimately, I was more comfortable. I like that, my jerk-off persona. Uh, He's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, Growing up in the 70s in a rural area, didn't everyone get abused? To some level, by today's standards, I've been in physical altercations with my parents in a few instances, but we all recognize our ignorance at that time. We've said horrifying things to each other, typically alcohol-fueled, but despite this, I maintain a decent relationship with them. I feel like we have a duty to grow past that era together. I do not know if I endured any sexual abuse from any of my parents' female friends, but inherent reactions by my body indicate otherwise, although I'm not sure I can articulate how. You might consider uh, checking out somatic experiencing. It's a nonverbal uh, modality of, of therapy that can release trauma that's in the body. I've, I've done it, and it was super powerful and helpful. Uh, darkest Thoughts. My sexual fantasies, um, oh, any positive experiences with abusers. Yes, despite the less than ideal conditions, I've always loved and honored my family and tried to live an honorable lifestyle. I feel I've been a good father to my kids who are now all adults, and I'm still married to my wife of 25 years. However, that caldera simmers, and I don't know why. Darkest Thoughts. My sexual fantasies consist of being dominated by a strong woman who doesn't take no for an answer. I feel like I'm always imagining what it would be like with another woman, although my wife is the only woman I've chosen as a sexual partner. While I've had opportunities to cheat, I've never done it out of fear of losing the best thing that's ever happened to me, marrying my wife and creating our own family. But the curious, dark pull remains and fuels my secret masturbation. My motorcycle is my daily driver, and I often fantasize about a brutal wreck and what it would be like to fly off the bike at a high speed and turn my body into hamburger on the road. I wonder how long my consciousness would hold on through the incident, or would the impending chemical dump in my brain during the trauma black me out from feeling it at all? I don't know why I think this nearly every ride, but in it involuntarily enters my mind whether I want it to or not. I've become better at recognizing the fleeting thoughts and not allowing them to have power over me, but I can't help but wonder about its genesis and or purpose. Darkest Secrets. I regularly take psychedelics and disappear into the wilderness a few times a month solo. I've slowly revealed my drug use to my wife by romanticizing them with all of the new research being done on them as the context. She has grown okay with it as long as I'm safe. I use the ruse of my bioengineering degree as cover for intelligent use, but the reality is I just love being ridiculously high on psychedelics every once in a while alone. It feels like I get connected with the source of the earthly realm in a way that grants me refuge from the simmering caldera below my subconscious 
and seems to help me put things in perspective. However, I feel that it may also poke at the thin veneer covering the caldera, causing a potential eruption eventually. I just don't know. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. The most powerful fantasy to me is being a young, ignorant kid who gets ushered through the sexual world with an older woman who is highly experienced and is willing to break me into the world of wild, passionate sex. Nothing BDSM-like, but a considerate mentorship, if you will. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Watching my wife's body erode from immunodeficiencies while she continues a habit of smoking cigarettes cigarettes and watching TV shows all day. It feels as, as if she's given up on her future and is just waiting to die. My God, that has got to be so hard to watch. I don't want to presume to know what it's like in her skin, but it frustrates me and she is unmi- unmotivated to grow old with me and it feels like she succumbed to the fact that she will not grow old and has chosen to spend her precious time in front of her laptop almost entirely. What if anything do you wish for? For my wife's health to rebound so she can join me on my excursions into mother nature and spend our time sitting on a porch chair with her growing old and goofy playing with future grandkids. Have you shared these things with others? No, I've written these things down a couple of times on my own, but then destroyed them for fear of discovery. This podcast has prompted me to try it again and see if it gets read on the show, although I do not know what it will be like to hear my written word read by someone else who will be projecting it to the world. Something tells me that doing so will vent off some of the caldera's pressure or trigger it for good. We'll see, I guess. How do you feel after writing these things down? Not sure. Anxious. Am I further cementing these things into reality? Or is this how you overcome the internal battles and grow? I really do not know how this may shake out. I think beginning to voice it, whether it's to ourselves or to another person, I I don't ever think that that can... I, I suppose it depends on the person that we're venting it to or sharing it with, but I don't think it's ever... A bad thing to begin to process it. I think the way we go about it, um, you know, and that's why where therapists can really help because they can, you know, kind of um, pace you so you're not taking on too much at once. But I, ho- I hope you hear me read this, and I and I, I hope um, it brings you comfort and validation. And um, man, the shit that you went through. That's fucking heavy, man. That is really, that's really heavy. I'm sending you, sending you some love. Speaking of loves, uh, this is our final survey. This is from the love survey filled out by Lyndon. And they write, I love a lazy morning with my husband. I usually wake up first, but on the rare occasion he does, I wake up to him stroking my head with a sly smile. Oh, that's so sweet. I love sitting with my feet in my pool even when it's in the 50s. You must definitely live in the East or the Midwest. Holy shit. Oh, I love this next one. I love being at home in fluffy PJs while a blizzard rages outside. Is there anything better than putting on flannel PJs? 
I love the silence after a snowfall. These are so good. I love walking through the woods after a gentle rainfall. I love stumbling across a seasonal stream in my mountain desert home. I love having an array of acquaintances I see every day in my community. There is something really nice about the consistency of that. I love taking uh, walk breaks at work and watching the sheep and goats across the street. I'm I'm beginning to think you don't live in the East or the Midwest. Uh, I love the feeling after walk and talk therapy. I love splashing Great Lakes water on my face. I guess you do. Maybe you do live in the... Listen, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to pinpoint her exact location. Uh, But I'm going to need grant money. I love it when I'm engrossed in my work and my cat approaches to to demand cuddles. That's such a great one. And I love the smell of mountain desert rain. Thank you for those. And thank you everybody that... uh, filled out surveys and thanks to Dr. Scott Lyons and if you're out there and you're struggling just never forget that that you are not alone and thanks for listening everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up I in know some weird way bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way